Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Rowan, uh, with, with uh, Cover to Cover host. Hi, this is Raina Cowan. Welcome to another edition of Cover to Cover, as I like to say, frame to frame. I'm with you for the next half hour talking to you about film. And today I wanted to focus on a film that's going to be broadcast next week on KQED-TV that uh, really struck my fancy. It's entitled Plastic Man, The Artful Life of Jerry Ross Barish. Uh, It's directed by William Farley, or Farley is, I think, He's known in the community and produced by our guest today, Janice Plotkin. There is something really interesting about Jerry Barish. Not only is he now doing uh, sculpture, found sculpture, but he was very involved in the free speech movement as a bail bondsman and had many other roles. And I thought it would be really interesting uh, to talk about him and talk about this film so with me to talk about the film is the producer, Janice Plotkin. She is both the producer of this film as well as a curator at the Mill Valley Film Festival. And she was one of the founders of the Jewish Film Festival as well. So I've interviewed her many times over the years. So welcome to KPFA. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. So let's start by what it was about Jerry Barish that first inspired you to tell the story. I found Jerry Barish, a kind of San Francisco iconoclast, uh, who managed to continue to evolve and change his life. Uh, Originally, I met him as a filmmaker. Uh, He was at the Berlin Film Festival, which, with what is now his third film, uh, called Shuttlecock. And shortly thereafter, he became interested in the Jewish Film Festival and became our first uh, business sponsor, Barish Bail Bonds, which I thought was always kind of hilarious. Uh, We didn't really have a lot of business support, but he stepped up. And then after that came Wells Fargo Bank, so gave us some kind of stamp of approval. His um, life as a filmmaker uh, actually transitioned to uh, an artist shortly thereafter. And soon I understood that he was uh, making art out of found objects into uh, narrative sculptures, that tell stories. And I thought, well, that's very interesting uh, because he was a storyteller as well as a filmmaker, but originally as a bail bondsman. So as you can see, there's a trajectory of life that reflects our times that you can change your life, you can continue to evolve even in midlife and find success. So why don't we start with, you know, something that I think is quite a dilemma, because if you are making a film about a, somebody who's been a filmmaker, I'm sure that they have a lot of opinions. <laughs> so how did you sort of start thinking about how to get him engaged with the subject and how to have him be a participant when he was probably so used to being behind the camera? I don't think he did a very good job of controlling his impulses to direct us. So he had many good uh, ideas uh, and advised us. Some some of his ideas we actually incorporated and were happy about. The other thing is because he had been um, a director, he was mightily uncomfortable uh, in front of the camera. And so it took a while to kind of uh, get him to feel relaxed and um, a, a sort of willingness to open up. And I think even though William Farley and I have been friends with him for decades, 
that took that took a while. And uh, one of the tricks we used actually was to tell him that the camera was not running, and then he should just tell a story. And suddenly his whole face changed, and he was able to move ahead with his storytelling. And there's much to talk about, particularly in the bail bond uh, business, because he started in 1961 as a 22-year-old just out of um, the Army, and uh, he really grew into his his own career by um, the alliances that he made with uh, young and up-and-coming attorneys and judges who were helping out the activists uh, that were protesting both at on the UC Berkeley campus as well as um, civil rights actions that were happening in San Francisco. So he was working really in um, collaborating uh, to make it possible for them to uh, go through the system quickly and go back out onto the streets. Well, that's so interesting because I think that that's really unusual. I don't know if that was the role that bail bondsmen had before. So how do you understand what motivated him or allowed him to take this sort of more political position? You know, I think about that frequently, and I've asked him, and he said that his parents uh, were strong union supporters, and they were active in their own unions, um, and uh, and had a um, compassion for the underdog, and that was the home that he grew up in. It was a very social home. His father had been a professional boxer, so there were a lot of sports and entertainment people that were part of his circle. And uh, he would say that the bail bond business is a very conservative business, but in his own life he had um, access to all kinds of interesting people uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, And some of those people included um, mafia types who eventually led him to making the connection to open up his own bail bond business. So since it was, there was something that was so important about what he was doing in the 60s, it seems like it was also very risky because uh, I'm not sure exactly how bail bondsmen make their money, but uh, he was really putting sort of the politics first, it seems like. He was putting the politics first, and in most cases it was families that were bailing out their children, and uh, the risk factor was um, really, it was more that he knew he was doing the right thing and was less less worried about um, the uh, whether he would, whether they would jump bail or not. That a bail bondsman is like providing insurance to the court that uh, someone arrested will, will show up, and it's a, a certain percentage of what the bail is goes as a guarantee to the bail bondsman. If someone doesn't show up, then um, Barish Belbons had taken a financial risk. Um, but in these cases, uh, except for some of the... Uh, there were some uh, more radical elements that took advantage of his office and skipped bail. That definitely happened. But I'd say 90% of the cases, it was uh, families protecting their kids. You're listening to Frame to Frame, and we're speaking with the producer of the film Plastic Man, The Artful Life of Jerry Ross. Sorry, The Artful Life of Jerry Ross Barish, uh, Janice Plotkin. So, Janice, you had to do a lot of archival research to to back up the story, both about the '60s and uh, and so then sort of on through. So, what was it like? Uh, 
in this day and age, getting all the footage? Because I know that it's the ways that that happens has changed over time. Well, luckily, we have tremendous archives that were uh, put together by TV stations that covered the news during this period. And um, some of the entire archives were then donated to, or, or actually just given away to local concerns at San Francisco State, Rick Prelinger, who's an archivist of all kinds of wonderful images, and then the film Berkeley in the 60s made by Mark Kitchell had a treasure trove of archival uh, material. So I, those were the way, you know, when, once you source it, it turns out there aren't that many people who have it, but it was available. It was available. And it was iconic. I mean, uh, um, Mario Savio's speech uh, about the uh, resisting uh, the system by putting your hands on the uh, cogs and the wheels and stopping things the way in the direction that it felt like society wanted us to go in that speech, I'm happy to say, is in the film. It was like a clarion call for all students to, to be active, um, to not accept the status quo. I feel really uh, proud that we have that in the film uh, right now at a time when we also need to pay attention to what's happening to our own democracy. Um, so I feel like the film has relevance for right now what's happening on a daily basis uh, to remind you one person can make a difference in so many ways. Yeah, so he so he starts off as a bail bondsman from this family, and then somehow he makes it into making films. Uh, how did he make that kind of transition, and did he stay political while he made that uh, transition? Because it doesn't seem like his films fell into that same kind of niche. I think he's a romantic, and he would not uh, call himself political. I think he would call himself a uh, watchdog for democracy and making sure the judicial systems worked for everybody. Um, but I think matching up his age with the times, I think he was inspired by the times to do something more creative. And after about a decade as a bail bondsman, he was secure enough financially to uh, try to finish his education. He had dropped out of college, and uh, uh, through the uh, contacts that he had with artists whose work he bought, he he was mentored by a number of artists, built a portfolio, and um, applied to the San Francisco Art Institute, where he got both an undergraduate and a graduate degree. I think he's a creative guy. I think people, they have it in them. Uh, to think differently and to pursue art. And um, it took a while for Jerry to realize that there was an opening in his own um, psyche that would allow that creativity pour, to pour out. Uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how it happened. Uh, it is remarkable. So he made his own films and got into festivals. So he was talented. It wasn't just like there's some people who make films and it doesn't really go somewhere. He was actually really able to make an international name for himself. It's uh, fantastic that you say that. It's absolutely true that his first film, Dan's Motel, uh, was a film that kind of is emblematic of what is an independent film. It it, it was a film that was uh, written and directed by the same guy who had a vision. They called the French called it the auteur. He was like an American auteur. Um, making a films in the mid-70s, uh, 
about love, uh, romantic love, about loneliness. Uh, and Dan's Motel are three stories that happen in different um, uh, rooms in a motel that was along the beach in, um, I think it was just south of Pacifica, uh, Moss Beach, Moss Beach. Uh, and that kind of rang true to curators uh, looking for new talent and the film was quickly discovered uh, and, and and screened, which is like one of the highest compliments at the New York um, Museum of Modern Arts series called New Directors, New Film. Uh, so he was among the, he was in good company uh, with uh, Spike Lee and um, Wayne Wang and Vim Benders and um, Jim Jarmusch. He, he, emerged along at the same time that they did. It was amazing. <laughs> it is kind of remarkable. Do you think, I mean, looking at his work, do you see the elements of, you know, that his father had been a boxer, or do you see the bail bondsman kind of part coming out in this, or do you think it was just a whole other aspect of who he was? I, no, I think he unconsciously uh, is telling stories from his life. He is a romantic. His uh, Dan's motel has a room uh, with the scene of a guy who uh, thinks being a member of the mafia is a romantic idea and fancies himself, you know, a, a gangster and uh, has a kind of um, uh, a laugh off of the whole thing. And I think that uh, things, stories like that also show up in. Um, in the way in which he tells love stories. Uh, his second film was uh, looking at couples, a, a gay couple and a straight couple, and both of the couples break up for the same reasons. Um, so one of the, that was made in the early, late 70s, a very early film to be taking on a gay and lesbian love story. Um, and, he's not, and he's a straight man. That was, I thought, very innovative. And the film Shuttlecock, I think, is... Um, about a man's ambivalence about uh, committing to one person, and so like a uh, like a shuttlecock, like the um, badminton uh, birdie birdie that goes back and forth. Um, the film tells a story about a man who can't decide between two women. Well, so they all seem like that they're really interesting stories. That uh, I mean, I guess if you're a bail bondsman, I don't know if you wind up hearing people's stories, you know, like, or whether they just come in or they don't come in, I guess they're in jail. But somehow there is a, I don't know, an, able, an ability to develop something that's fantastic, really unusual. Yeah, he knows that he's got a treasure trove of uh, material for a film if he wanted to do uh, bail bond stories. And um, I think the overall... The experience of working in a collaborative environment like filmmaking was appealing to him, but the capital expense of really uh, getting it made uh, after three attempts and not getting a phone call from uh, a studio in Los Angeles, I think he felt like perhaps it was um, time to put that part of his career aside because it's just, you know, it's expensive. It's an expensive hobby. Even if you have the success of uh, being presented at international film festivals, uh, it's, you know, it's hard. It's hard. 
We're speaking with Janice Plotkin, who is the producer for the film Plastic Man, The Artful Life of Jerry Ross Barish, that's going to be airing on KQED-TV this coming Tuesday at 11 p.m. and Wednesday at 5 a.m., sort of sandwiched in there. Uh, Of course, you could always tape if if you don't go to bed later, get up early. But uh, And this is Raina Cowan. You're listening to Frame to Frame. So I want to step back a little bit and think about your role as a producer. It's very rare that I get to speak to producers about uh, filmmaking. So what is your role as a producer and uh, how did it develop through the course of the film? The, you know, the producer is kind of like the glue that holds it together. It's the general manager. It's the team captain. uh, It's the fundraiser. Uh, and uh, and if you're lucky, you find a director who you can work with creatively. And um, fortunately, I also had a creative role in the film because there were certain elements of his personality and also of his life experience that I thought were important to tell. Uh, certainly the bail bond story felt important, but at its core, this is a biography of an artist and about both his process and how he was able to evolve to um, uh, to someone who was won a commission from the city of San Francisco for outdoor art. Uh, so I thought that the fact that he was dyslexic was very interesting um, because it certainly had a shadow over his ability to read and comprehend at a time when there wasn't a lot of special education resources for this kind of uh, learning disability, which is really just a brain rewiring in a certain way that makes it harder to read and harder to comprehend. But it does open up other synapses that make you an out-of-the-box thinker and a creative thinker. And I felt like that was an important part of his experience um, as an artist because he can take a look at a discarded piece of plastic that you would walk by on a street um, and... Uh, all of a sudden he's um, inspired by it and goes and finds other pieces and and lo and behold you put it together it's it's a it's a bird um, or it's a, a tall African uh, king or or uh, or or horses I've seen him make horses which I think are quite elegant out of you know discarded plastic I it, to me it's both looking at how the work fits together but it's also what you would call the after image after you look at it you look at this the parts but then you see the whole i just found that so interesting i um it it seemed like it was important to have every aspect of that creative process as part of telling the story um and also we're telling it in a way that has layers uh, because there's both the psychological experience of um, being dyslexic and feeling uh, maybe having a bad case of low self-esteem about it, the issues of having a father who um, uh, hung out with gangsters and whatever feelings he might have had about that, and then really being part of um, uh, the internal core of San Francisco, uh, working with both the legal systems as well as the film community and now the arts community. He's got his hands in all three places. It's really, I don't know, I think it's an interesting story how 
you know what? We are all actors in our own story. I feel like that is it. And Jerry Barish got lucky because somebody made a film about him. <laughs> so uh, it's it's funny because I asked you about being a producer and then you started talking about him. Mm-hmm. But you talked about being the glue. And I wonder if maybe that's maybe that's the analogy or the overlap is that he takes all these sort of found things and turns it into something. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's what the producer does too. It's like you're some way that you're taking all these pieces that are disparate and then somehow figuring out how to link them together and then get money for it. Good luck on all that out there in radio land, Mm -hmm. making a film. It's, it's definitely, that's a beautiful analogy. Um, I think what you need most of all is the inspiration. Um, People, don't necessarily know what a producer does. And in many cases, it's a variety of ways of describing it. Um, but the most important role is finding the money. Um, so that, that becomes the challenge of uh, is meeting the budget and finding the um, sources that make it possible. And the average independent film these days costs upwards of uh, one hundred and seventy to $200,000 for a low-budget documentary. And that's still quite a chunk of change to have to raise. So this is not a famous person. This is a San Francisco story um, that reflects upon the life and times of San Francisco and of a kind of true San Franciscan uh, who reflects, you know, what's unique about the city we live in and the environment that we're in. It's, he's emblematic of those, of what is unique about us. We're speaking with the producer of uh, Plastic Man, uh, Janice Plotkin. It's interesting that you mentioned that he is not a famous person. I don't know whether that uh, that there's some way where that makes it easier to get fundraising uh, happen or does it make it more difficult? Because it seems like he has many different threads, right, that you talked about him as a Bales bondsman, you talked about him as being dyslexic, you talked about him as... Uh, a filmmaker, and then as an artist, do you think that there was one thread that people were much more willing to support the film based on? I think there was not. (laughs) I think that some people were interested in the element of telling his story, but uh, others were interested in uh, telling the story of a dyslexic. And, um, And then there was some that were interested in preserving the social and political history of the times. And some were family and friends that wanted to support us. I mean, it it was a real grassroots effort there. Uh, If he had been a more famous um, sculptor, uh, let's say like Richard Serra, uh, people would be falling all over themselves to uh, give support to something like that because it would have a, a more guaranteed of a wider viewership uh and in our way, what we're doing is really introducing an artist to the world um, through his work. And as a result of the film, uh, Jerry's also had gallery shows and museum shows uh, coinciding with the screenings. And when that happens, uh, people are more interested in the art. And actually, he's sold a lot of work since the film um, made its way out onto the scene in the last couple of years. Oh, that's so interesting. So, you know, as somebody who watched the film, one of the 
the dilemmas that I saw that I imagined that you had to deal with in a way. Maybe it was just me, but there's a way that he's kind of in his own world and he's not the most related person. But uh, I found myself completely engaged at the same time. And I think that that is quite a talent to get somebody who really, I don't think, is so comfortable expressing himself. And yet there are so many ways that he is expressing himself and having it come out of the film. So how did you think about that? And uh, how did you think about that in the editing so that uh, he kind of shines through? Every time he smiled, we made sure that made it into the film. That was one of our tricks. Uh, I think, he, as I mentioned in the beginning, he he's a storyteller, but he's a quiet man. And, uh, and he spends a lot of time in solitude uh, creating. So I think it's hard to switch gears. At the same time, he's someone you would want to sit at a cafe and let him just tell stories. And he once he gets on a roll, uh, he's very gregarious and quite charismatic. Hard to transfer that onto um, a screen or an interview. But uh, yeah, it's, it's there. It's kind of buried and it needs the right circumstances for it to come out. So you said that you've been um, screening the film kind of all over the country and that it's made him more well-known. Uh, what are the screenings like and uh, the re- the response? It's wonderful to see where it happens in a completely different city where they've never heard of him before. So then the film becomes a source of inspiration that you can uh, move in a new direction and uh, find find yourself find your way through it uh, and and we tended to have in places like uh, let me think of a good example phoenix arizona uh we screened with the uh international sculpture conference and we had at the screening uh local people who are interested in art art collectors and in this case artists and sculptors so it was a really interesting mix of you know people interested in art. And that was different than the San Francisco Bay Area, where he's better known as a bail bondsman. And um, at one of the screenings, this was uh, when it screened at the Jewish Film Festival, he got a standing ovation. Half of the audience had been people that he had bailed out. <laughs> so that was nice. That was nice. That That is really wonderful. So uh, we're almost out of time, but I'm wondering if there's something at a tip that you have about if you're making a film about an artist, like what are you, what do you need to pay attention to in a way? Because you're talking about the layering, you're talking about uh, capturing somebody who likes to work in solitude. But is there some kind of tip that you have about what would make it really work? I think it's really good to give yourself plenty of time to um, watch the process. Uh, and also see new works as they emerge. Um, it took us about five years to make this film. And in it, uh, new things happened to him, new developments in the direction of his art. Uh, he had a, a fantastic show at a gallery um, in the Fillmore, which is since uh, gone. But it was a show of uh, musicians and instruments and people uh, playing music and a theater company director walked in and decided he was going to make theater based on the stories of these sculptures. 
And that happened in probably a year, three and a half. So you're waiting for these kind of like magical moments uh, that come and make uh, the experience of making the film more interesting. Um, so I guess the, the the trick is, besides raising money, is uh, to be patient. <laughs> Great. Janice Plotkin, the producer of the film Plastic Man, The Artful Life of Jerry Ross Barish, it plays on KQED TV this coming Tuesday at 11 p.m. and then the following Wednesday, the 30th at 5 a.m. Uh, so I think you might really enjoy sticking in and listening to that, uh, watching that show. It'll be really interesting. So Janice Plotkin, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Raina. This was really fun. Uh, my name's Raina Cowan, and this has been Frame to Frame, and I'll be back next month to talk more about film. Thanks for listening. Make a smart investment. Support KPFA Radio today. We make the most of every dollar donated by producing truly independent news, analysis, cultural, and public affairs programming. You are essential in keeping that information flowing and KPFA on the air. Invest today. Become a member or an ally as a monthly sustainer. Online today at kpfa.org. And we promise to stay as vigilant as always. A human rights lawyer who has written The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, Dan Kovalik, believes this anti-Russian campaign is one of the biggest fake news operations in all of U.S. history. He'll be throwing down an instructive challenge to mainstream media in Berkeley on Thursday evening, September 7th, 730 at St. John's Presbyterian Church, 2727 College Avenue. There's free parking and wheelchair access. Flashpoint's Kevin Pina will host. Tickets at brownpapertickets.com and supportive bookstores. Are you tired of the Matrix? The movie? No, not the movie, but the one you're living in. If so, then hang out with your friends at the Full Circle. What's the Full Circle? 